Good morning and welcome to uh, the second panel of our conference. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, my name is Lina Polyakova. I'm the Associate Director here at the Dinu Patricio Eurasia Center. And it's my pleasure to very briefly introduce our second distinguished panel uh, for today's session. But before I do that, I'd like to remind for those of you uh, following the conversation at home or abroad, you can follow the dialogue um, on Twitter with the hashtag ACRussia and the handle ACEurasia. So without further ado, our second panel uh, is a distinguished group of experts um, who may require no introduction to you. Ambassador Dennis Ross is counselor and William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He served as Special Assistant to President Obama and National Security Council Senior Director and a Special Advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. We also have joining us today Dr. Adam Garfinkel, who is the founding editor of The American Interest, and Dr. Mawafek al-Rubai, who is the former National Security Advisor for Iraq and who served as a member of Parliament Iraq's Council of Representatives. And with us today from Moscow is Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer, who is an independent Moscow-based military analyst and a journalist at one of the last independent papers, Novaya Gazeta, in Russia today. And we also have, last but definitely not least, Ambassador Richard Burt, who is the Managing Director of McClarity Associates, is a former U.S. Ambassador to Germany, and also the Board Director, Director and Executive Committee Member of the very own, our very own Atlantic Council. And I'm moderating our discussion today is, of course, Ambassador John Herbst, who is Director of the Atlantic Council's Dino Patricio Eurasia Center, my boss, and who served as the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and Uzbekistan. So we're delighted to have you with us today, and I would like to invite you all to join us on the stage. I'd like to thank everyone for coming this morning. Um, as you can see, we've got a great panel. And the importance of this conversation has been heightened by the diplomacy over the past week, week and a half. As we speak, there are negotiations going on in New York following Secretary Kerry's visit to Moscow. And with that, I'll turn it over to our first speaker. Um, Adam, please. Thank you. Uh, it's um, I'm very flattered to be here. I'm delighted to be invited to an Atlantic Council program. And uh, I'm humbled to be among so many deeply experienced and wise um, co-panelists. Um, my task was to lay out the motives for um, the Russian intervention in Syria, and then to say a little bit something about what it means in terms of policy context for the United States. And I, um, in, the, in my paper, I basically lay out two sets of three motives, um, a circle of three that I consider to be primary or strategic um, considerations, and then uh, three less important ancillary uh, motives, which uh, may or may not um, intertwine in interesting ways with, with the others. So the first circle of three, the, I think the least ambitious and the most obvious uh, Russian motive for the intervention in Syria, which a lot of this has been mentioned already in the first panel, that's the wages of not going first, is obviously there was an ally in trouble. Syria was in trouble. Um, 
the Assad, the war's toed and froed over the last four and some years, but uh, as of last summer, as was mentioned in the first panel, uh, the Assad regime looked to be in real trouble in the north around Aleppo and Idlib, and uh, uh, the Russians don't have a lot of allies. Uh, the base at Tartus, the only base the Russians have outside of Russian Federation territory, and so um, it would look bad, and it would be bad for the Russians strategically if they lost really the only the only ally they had in that part of the world, in which any part of the world. So, um, just like the United States intervened many years ago and to protect South Vietnam from being defeated, the Russians intervened to protect uh, the Assad regime from being overthrown. Uh, the second motive, again also alluded to earlier, is that the intervention puts Russia in the role of a kind of a kingmaker. I mean, they are there on the ground with an air base in Latakia province. They're there with tanks and airplanes and other military accoutrements. And they had become um, a much larger factor in any prospective settlement to the Syrian civil war and then what might be done uh, with respect to Daesh um, thereafter. Uh, the third motive, I think, which hasn't been mentioned, and this is highly speculative on my part. I have no hard evidence to back this up, but I think it's a logical um, inference that I think we need to at least consider. Uh, the, the Syrian regime over some four years or so with frankly a not very impressive um, order of battle, managed to kill something like a quarter of a million people, mostly unarmed civilians, uh, to create something like four million refugees out of a population of about 24 million, and to create something like seven or eight internally displaced peoples, internal refugees. Uh, the Russians, if they wanted to, could uh, kill three times as many people and produce many, many, many more refugees than the regime already has, the point being to put a good deal of pressure on, um, on the European Union. The European Union has obviously had a great deal of difficulty coping with uh, 800,000 refugees or less than a million. Imagine what it would do to Europe, uh, the, the, the tenor of European politics uh, if they had to deal with 3 million or 4 million. I don't have any evidence, again, as I say, that the Russian government, that Vladimir Putin is deliberately trying to exacerbate uh, and, and push to the right European politics. But uh, I wouldn't put it past him, and one of the reasons is because just like there are these three main strategic uh, rationales for Russian motives in, in, um, in Syria, there are, I, th I also see a kind of like mushtruka dolls, you know, nested in, inside of one another, uh, same kind of scaled motives in Ukraine. Uh, the first is just to create a rubble heap uh, so that Western ideas and institutions can't get closer to Moscow. The second would be to suborn or replace the uh, government in Kiev, which uh, is not to the liking of Vladimir Putin. But the third stretch goal, probably much too dangerous to attempt, would be to um, uh, send little green men into a Baltic state and watch what would happen uh, in the American, uh, the European, and the transatlantic response. If the United States and its allies uh, failed to respond in a vigorous way, that would be the end of NATO and of the American alliance system with it. So it, it's possible, in theory anyway, for the Russians to very grievously harm NATO uh, without actually meeting it on the field of battle and visa the, uh, the increase in the, in the flow of asylum refugees into the European Union from Syria, it's possible to uh, put a great deal of pressure against the European Union without actually trying to uh, attack it or deal with it in a physical way. We've already seen uh, uh, the Italians a little, a little bit wobbly about the uh, um, uh, continuation of sanctions uh, against uh, against Russia on, on account of Ukraine. So uh, these motives, although they are, as I said, they're speculative, they're not uh, unreasonable, and so I think they need to be kept in mind. Now, the three ancillary motives, uh, one of them has been mentioned a lot, which is uh, Putin's desire, uh, as a matter of course, 
to wrong foot the United States, to make Russia look like it's a great international power again. And of course, uh, as was mentioned before, this has uh, a lot of domestic political resonance. And I don't think we should underestimate the domestic political um, motivations for a lot of what the Russian government has done, not just in this particular instance, but over the past several years. Uh, you can track pretty much what the Russians do uh, abroad in various cases with difficulties that Putin perceives in the domestic realm. Uh, uh, but there are two other motives. I mentioned Ukraine. One of the motives, I think, is simply distraction, is to get people's minds off of Eastern Europe and Ukraine and to get it on the Levant. And this has worked wonderfully. It's been a very, very useful tactic. After the, uh, the uh, speeches that President Obama and President Putin gave at UNGA, you will recall that both the French and the Italian delegates at UNGA wished the Russians well in Syria, all right? Well, what kind, of, what kind of selective amnesia do Western allies have to have to wish, to wish the Russians well in Syria and not say a word about what's going on in Ukraine? The third ancillary motive, and again, I'm not a Russia expert, really. I, don't, I, I would defer to Slava and to Pavel about, and to Angela about this subject. But it seems to me that one of the things that we've been witnessing is a kind of an international arms show air show and with a ground addenda designed to uh, basically sell weapons. Uh, you know, the Russians had to eat an $8 billion bill when uh, the Baathi government in Iraq went down. The, the Syrians owe them about four and a half to $5 billion. I think they're concerned about that, but more important, uh, the Russians have sold the Iranians the S-300 air defense system. That's expensive stuff. The Iranian conventional order of battle is rusting and basically useless they are going to get something on the order of 100 to $125 billion in cash. And one of the things they're going to do with that money is try to buy a conventional capacity. Where are they going to get it from? We're not going to sell it to them. Uh, uh, the only place they can really go is, is Russia. It's even possible that the Iraqis, the Iraqi government, will decide, if only for the cause of interoperability with Iran, also to purchase a new Russian uh, conventional uh, order of battle. And if you add up these numbers, I mean, you're talking about you know, grocery money here. You're probably talking about looking out over a 10-year period, something more than 50 to $60 billion. Now, that may not sound like a lot of money to the United States, but in Russia, which is deindustrialized, and the military-industrial complex being plugged into the oligarchy, that's politically powerful amounts of money. So to me, those are the, three, the two sets of three motives that I think, um, I think explain what the Russians are doing. Now, the problem, of course, it's easy to list motives. It's very easy to do this. The problem is to assign what the priorities are in the minds of the decision makers in Moscow, and then to assay how these various motives interact. Uh, I don't have time to discuss that, but also, we don't have any hard evidence uh, about how that works. Uh, and again, I would defer to the Russia experts to, um, to counsel me on what they think the interaction and the priorities really are. Last comment. What does this mean for the United States? Uh, Dennis will talk about this in, at more length, but just let me say very briefly. I mean, it seems to me that if you think about the problem in Syria and with uh, Daesh long enough, you come to the following very simple syllogism. Number one, uh, Daesh is a problem. It's a threat. It's dangerous. How dangerous? People can argue, but after, after what's happened in the last couple of weeks, it's dangerous. And there's a lot of discomfort, it seems to me, that the policy right now that the United States is pursuing is uh, not adequate either in terms of its likely consequences or its, its urgency to, uh, to obviate the problem. Second part of the syllogism, okay, then you've got to uh, go after these guys on the ground. Air power alone doesn't work. Who is going to uh, supply these, these forces on the ground? Well, uh, there's been a change in the polls in the last couple of weeks 
uh, more Americans are willing now to send large numbers of American forces into the Middle East than I thought would be the case, and probably for the wrong reason, but that's irrelevant. But I don't think that President Obama uh, is persuaded that this is, the, this is the right thing to do. So we're looking also for reasons of not just political expediency, but political efficacy. We're looking for Sunni allies on the ground. They may be Arab, they may be Turkish. But as has already been pointed, I think Marquette's pointed this out, uh, ISIS is not anybody's first priority. It's there, but everybody has a higher priority. It is therefore impossible to assemble a local coalition whose main target is the destruction of da Daesh. However, it is not impossible, in my view, to construct a coalition whose target is the Assad regime and with its Russian ally. And that brings us back to where we should start in the first place, which is that the Assad regime is the problem uh, in creating Daesh. The Russians are the problem in helping them, and the Iranians are the problem in helping them as well. So we come back to the real danger in the region, which is less uh, ISIS, which is a symptom uh, or an emanation of the problem. And the real problem is the Iranians, the Russians, with Hezbollah and the other, and the other militias. That's, that's the larger strategic problem, in my view. So this puts us right at loggerheads with what the Russians are trying to do in Syria, which is to sustain Bashar al-Assad, where our interest and the interest of the Sunni coalition should be to displace him, whether physically or by dint of retorking the battlefield so that diplomacy can produce the kind of outcome that we desire. Um, that's how I see it. Um, I, the last thing I'll say is this. You know, if the United States had decided three and a half, four years ago to create a humanitarian zone, my preference was that it, it'd be Turkish soldiers and with US and NATO backing, but of course no one paid any attention to me, obviously. Um, if we had done that, we'd have been there first. Uh, we would have, we, um, the opposition to the regime would have a chunk of real estate, Syrian real estate, which against which to, in escrow, against which to trade for influence over a, a solution, political solution to the Syrian civil war. Now the Russians are there first. Now, suggestions that we create a no-fly zone or create or suggestions that we uh, bring standoff weapons uh, to attack the regime or degrade the regime or suggestions that we create a humanitarian keep-out zone run into the fact that the Russians are already there and therefore raises the possibility of either an inadvertent or not so inadvertent clash, direct clash between American and Russian forces in Syria. That's dangerous. Um, that's what comes from um, not using force judiciously at an earlier point in a crisis uh, and then allowing it to fester so that all one's solutions and all the risks get worse. I'll stop there. Thank you. Wonderful. Dennis? Um, <clears throat> so what I'm going to try to do is say a few things that complement, I think, what Adam just said, but also what I heard from the first panel as well. And I want to put kind of in a larger context the, the issue of what's sort of driving the, the Russians and how should we respond to it. You know, if you go back to 1971, Angela, do you remember? <laughs> as, as, as do I. No, I mean it from the standpoint of Alexei Kosygin said in 1971 that no problem anywhere in the world could be resolved without the Soviet Union. And it's pretty clear that Vladimir Putin would like to create that as a reality for Russia. Now in 1971, when, uh, when Kosygin was saying this, we didn't view it positively. Detente was supposed to regulate and make competition predictable. It wasn't supposed to make the Soviet Union a global arbiter. The question is, is it a good idea for Putin to become a global arbiter? And maybe we can discuss that in the panel. I would like to just say, at least on the issue of terrorism, and we, I heard this a little bit in the first panel, he said a lot of the right things. Uh, and Angela, you said he's going back to 2001, he said the right things. He said we didn't 
at that time we agreed on the, on the same enemy. Today we may not agree on that, but if you listen to what he said at the UN, uh, what, he, what he said later in October, what he said in his December 3rd uh, presidential address, the essence of what he said in each case was, we need a kind of grand alliance, uh, we need to forget about our differences and come up with a common front. Uh, we can't differentiate between moderate uh, and immoderate terrorists. Uh, you know, we, we have to, we, we basically uh, can't have a double standard when it comes to terrorists and we, we shouldn't be dealing with terrorist groupings. And all those things sound very good. Now in the December 3rd address, it looks like most of those were directed against Turkey. And obviously when he talks about moderate and immoderate terrorists, he's really sort of getting at us and who are we supporting. But I think it's fair to say that his own words aren't necessarily consistent with his own behavior when it comes to Syria. Who is he partnering with, with Syria? He is partnering with the Revolutionary Guard's Quds Forces. He's partnering with Hezbollah. Uh, these are two organizations, I think it's fair to say, who have made terrorism a fundamental instrument of their policy. Uh, in the case of Hezbollah, I think it's fair to say that they invented the idea of suicide bombing. So he has no problem being a partner with them and he has no problem actually providing air cover for what they're doing on the ground. So that begins to raise some questions perhaps about you know, whether or not we can be these grand partners when it comes to terror. But it doesn't really address the question of whether or not we could collaborate uh, on Syria. Uh, and Nabil isn't here, but Nabil is saying we should be, you know, the, that there's no answer unless both we and the Russians are there. And it's clear that the, that the President uh, and, and Secretary Kerry also believe that. What is interesting when you listen to the two of them is that they sound a little bit different. I mean, the, the objective is the same in terms of collaboration, but they're a little bit different in terms of their expectations. The president, after he saw Putin in Paris, was confident that eventually Putin will come around. It'll take some time, but it'll, he'll come around because of the, in a sense, the logic of quagmire, that the costs are simply going to be too high, and that's what's going to produce a change in Putin. So he won't support uh, Assad the same way, so he will decide that he actually has to go after ISIS as opposed to where most of the attacks are coming today, meaning most of the targets are against the non-ISIS opposition. Kerry is different. He's much more enthusiastic about the character of the cooperation. When you look at what he said in the aftermath of the uh, Vienna conference uh, and the first meeting, uh, he said, we really agree on all the same principles. You look at what the secretary said when he was in Moscow on Tuesday, uh, and he said, well, you know, we may not see eye to eye on every aspect of a Syrian policy, but he said, uh, we want the same outcome. Uh, he said, we see the same challenges. Uh, he said, we both want to go after Daesh. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, that obviously creates the potential for the kind of collaboration that we see, at least that the administration, I think, sees. And I really wish and I hope that they're right. Uh, like you, Fred, I, I really want them to be right. Uh, I'm afraid they're wrong. I hope I'm wrong but I'm afraid they're wrong. And I say that because I look at what is the, the pattern of behavior over time uh, in Syria. I'm afraid the approach in Syria with Putin is still very much a zero-sum approach. Uh, I'm afraid the approach is still very much one of, uh, of backing the, the regime. Uh, you know, I, the, the aims that you described, I pretty much accept. I mean, look, it's, I think it's no secret that Putin wants to preserve the military presence and the access that they've had in the past. 
he wants to be an arbiter uh, of any outcome uh, in Syria. He wants to parlay being an arbiter in Syria into being seen as the key arbiter in the region as a whole. Uh, and the fact that, uh, I think someone said in the early panel, you look at who's been going to Moscow, he looks increasingly like he's succeeding at that. And by the way, there's been a constant message, apropos of the zero-sum notion, uh, the message from the Russians has been for the last couple of years, even before the military intervention, uh, and, and I've heard this constantly from uh, my friends throughout the Arab world, the, the Russians are saying to them, you may not like our support for Assad, but the difference between us and the Americans, we stand by our friends. Uh, and so that's, again, that's part of what I think the, the approach has been. If you look diplomatically, yes, they supported the Geneva principles, but then in December of 2013 and, and January 2014, they completely backed Assad when they completely stonewalled uh, in the discussions that took place at that time. And the, and the military intervention is following the logic of what you might imagine. It's not just propping up the regime. It's designed to change the balance of power on the ground so any diplomatic process is influenced by the realities on the ground that the Russians are helping to create. So all of this suggests that, um, again, also when you look at what they're actually doing in terms of affecting the, the balance of power on the ground, you know, it is unfortunate for Secretary Kerry that the very day he was in Moscow was the day that we had the stories, this is the one you were referring to, Fred, in the Washington Post, but she was quoting from Jan Eglin and the UN officials responsible for, uh, you know, for humanitarian, providing humanitarian assistance. The Russians are carrying out a kind of set of attacks that aren't just going after the non-ISIS uh, opposition, but they're also trying to depopulate areas. They're deliberately making it harder for humanitarian assistance to be provided. They are attacking hospitals. They are at attacking uh, grain silos. They're attacking water treatment plants. Uh, and, and all of this, again, I think is part of a fundamental approach that is designed to produce an interesting reality. When I say zero sum, it's also they want, ironically, a posture that is very similar to what Assad wants and actually what ISIS wants as well a polarization, that the only two choices are ISIS or Assad, Assad or ISIS. ISIS wants it because this is the way they're going to mobilize the Muslims. Uh, Assad wants it because this is the way you mobilize the world behind him. And it's clear that's what I think Putin still wants. Now, maybe he can change if the costs go up high enough. And I come to what will be a last set of comments. Um, first, again, the administration could be right and I could be wrong, and the proof of it we can see and we should see very soon. The proof of it is what happens with Vienna. The issue isn't whether or not Assad is at the table. The issue is, and this is apropos of what you were getting at, Fred, and I'm going to expand on a little bit. The issue is, do they enforce a real ceasefire? There is no Vienna process without a ceasefire. Listen to Secretary Kerry. Secretary Kerry said, we're going to see within a few weeks a huge change because you'll see a ceasefire. If we see a ceasefire, by the way, a real ceasefire, I don't mean one that's a respite, goes on for a few weeks and then it's designed to sort of retool, you know, rearm and then and start over again. A real ceasefire, which only the Russians can actually impose when it comes to Assad, when it comes to Hezbollah, when it comes to the Iranians, only the Russians have the leverage to impose on that. Uh, if there is a real ceasefire and 
if they go along with the creation of humanitarian corridors to provide humanitarian assistance. If that takes place, Vienna becomes real. If that takes place, apropos what you were saying, Fred, if that takes place, then the opposition will have more of a reason to believe there actually could be a transition. Right now, they don't believe it, and they have no particular reason to believe it. But if that takes place, then this is real. And what I was just saying about the assessment of the Russians would be wrong, and I hope, I hope that's the case. It would be better for everybody. It certainly would be better for what is a humanitarian catastrophe uh, in Syria. Now, if it turns out that I'm not wrong, that doesn't mean you necessarily have to give up on the idea of trying to still push the Vienna process, but it means when you approach the Vienna process and you approach Putin, you have to approach Putin not with the logic of argument, but with the logic of leverage, which is, the le which is actually the logic that Putin understands. And the logic of leverage would have us do the following. It would have us go to the Russians and say, look, we are deep believers in the Vienna process. We have committed to it unmistakably. Uh, but it can't work unless there's a ceasefire, a real ceasefire, and there are humanitarian corridors. So if this fails because you're not prepared to do that, you leave us no choice but to support a safe haven. Now, the administration has been very reluctant to do a safe haven because it actually requires us to do something. And, and you're right, the risks of doing it now are greater than they were before. But the administration should also look at having invested so much in the event process, and the core to our strategy against ISIS now is not only ratcheting up against ISIS, but the Vienna process. Because the truth is, we have a contradiction. We send Ash Carter out to bring the Sunnis into this. There's no chance of bringing the Sunnis into this, so long as we are ratcheting up against ISIS, and the Russians continue to hammer the non-ISIS Sunni opposition. It means, for the Sunnis, for them to join us means they're part of an onslaught against the Sunnis, and they're not going to do it. If you had a safe haven, <coughs> I get all choked up when I talk about it. <laughs> if you had a safe haven where you staunch the refugee flow, which deals with part of the issue you're talking about with regard to Europe, you actually create an area within Syria where you could have leverage actually in the opposition to cohere. Uh, and in a sense, the Sunnis are seeing that something is done to stop the onslaught against Sunnis within Syria. You actually change the circumstance. Now, if the administration understands the logic of its own position, that if it really wants to be successful against ISIS, it needs to make the Vienna process succeed, the only way it has a chance to make the Vienna process succeed, if I'm right about the Russians and they don't impose a ceasefire humanitarian corridors, uh, is to then use leverage on Russia. For Putin, he will get, if we were serious about a safe haven, he will get what it means. He will understand. <coughs> It reduces his leverage on the Europeans. It will raise, it has the promise of actually creating an opposition that could become more effective against the Assad regime, which will raise the cost of supporting um, the Assad regime. Uh, and in effect, it means that for him, the ability to adopt these kinds of objectives that he has become much more difficult to achieve. So if I'm wrong, and, he's, and the Russians right now see the light, and Putin understands the logic of quagmire as the president thinks he does, then we'll see them go ahead and do a ceasefire, and we'll see them support humanitarian corridors. If it turns out that, and I don't think I'm alone in my assessment here, 
if it turns out that, in fact, this is not what Putin intends to do in the near term, that he doesn't intend to impose a ceasefire or allow the humanitarian corridors, that he's not prepared at this point for the Vienna process to be successful, then we are going to have to think about what are the ways we can build leverage. Fred has suggested one way to do it other than the way I'm suggesting is it's a variation of the same theme, uh, is to go ahead and, and create the kind of equivalent of what we did in 1990, 1991, create a real coalition for Syria. But for do, to do that, to create that, we have to be more credible about what we're prepared to do. So either you go Fred's way or, in a sense, the variation of my way, you use safe haven as a leverage. Ultimately, it can't be a leverage unless you're prepared to follow through on it. One last comment. You know, the interesting thing is, with the Turks clamoring for it, with the Europeans needing it, with the Gulf states requiring it, it actually does give us leverage on them to say, if we do the following, we will do it, provided you, the Europeans, will provide air forces for the safe haven uh, you know, to contribute to no-fly. You, the Saudis at all, will provide the monies to build the infrastructure within the safe haven. Uh, you, Turkey, will provide forces on the ground, and you have to, this is how we'll have to sort out the Kurdish question, to police the safe haven. Uh, and all monies and assistance from now on go through one channel so that we can actually build leverage on the opposition so that the opposition itself becomes more coherent. Anyway, it seems to me there are ways to proceed that do reflect the reality of the situation where we have the potential for leverage, but only if we're prepared to act on it. Dennis, that was great. Um, Rick, you're first up. Me? Yeah. Uh, I'm supposed to be brief here because I guess I'm commenting. So I'm going to make uh, four or five quick comments. And uh, actually, maybe for the first time in, in this session, uh, and I mean this mini conference, uh, actually maybe disagree with a couple of the comments that have been made. But first of all, on the issue of motives, uh, I largely agree with, uh, with what's been said both in the first session and this one on Russian motives. Uh, I would only add a couple of points. I think uh, I'm a little bit, I have, I have a little bit of, prob of a problem with Dennis's talk about uh, Putin and Russia wanting to be a, and I'm quoting here, a global arbiter. I think Russia at this stage and Putin at this stage and for the foreseeable future is not going to be a global arbiter. Uh, I think Russia is going to, uh, as we've seen in recent years, uh, is going to have a more robust policy. They're going to project power in, uh, into their neighborhood uh, for certain, in certain circumstances, and they're going to take advantage of opportunities like the one offered by uh, the Syrian civil war. But I don't, do not see for economic, political, and, and, and even domestic grounds in Russia, uh, the kind of reemergence of a kind of global superpower in the form of Russia. Uh, secondly, I, I also uh, am a little bit skeptical of Adam's motive of somehow Russia taking this action in Syria as a way of destabilizing the EU through migration. Uh, I mean, the one country, arguably, that's been perhaps most destabilized by, uh, uh, politically affected by the flows of, of, of immigrants is, uh, is Germany. They have uh, over uh, almost a million uh, migrants in Germany today. 
but Germany to Putin is a critical country in terms of his strategy working with and trying to uh, uh, deal with the European Union. Uh, I haven't heard one German uh, uh, leader express that concern. I don't, I think it's kind of highly unlikely and I, 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 I don't think it, it is credible to suggest that, uh, that he is trying to fine tune politics in, in Western Europe by, uh, by creating chaos uh, in, in Syria. Uh, but I will make a point about Ukraine, because the, the points that have been made this morning about his thinking about Ukraine and, and Western sanctions and his Syrian intervention are absolutely right. I do think that uh, Russian intervention in Syria had a catalytic impact in terms of not only uh, diplomacy and force in Syria, but it has changed the debate in Europe. And it's interesting, as I was discussing with Angela, that, uh, that Francois Hollande, after he visited Washington following the terrorist attacks in Paris, went immediately to Moscow and sat down with Putin. And the fact that we're thinking now about how the Russians might be folded into some kind of diplomatic solution and process in Syria uh, makes it enormously difficult for the Europeans to sort of continue to justify the sanctions policy against the Europeans, against Russia, particularly at a moment when those sanctions have a, a, a disproportionate impact on the Europeans and when, uh, and when uh, uh, it's, it's hard to justify new projects like Nord Stream 2 uh, at the same time while keeping sanctions in place uh, on Russia. So I'm not predicting an early change in this policy, but I do think as, as if, the, if Putin demonstrates that he's trying to seek somehow through just purely public diplomacy, uh, play a constructive role in the, in the Syrian exercise, I think the sanctions, uh, sanctions policy in uh, toward European EU sanctions against Russia are going to be uh, vulnerable. Uh, second point I would say is, is, is simply that uh, uh, I think that, uh, that if you compare U.S. and Russian policy in the Syrian uh, situation, that what Putin has done is defined or has, has created a much easier task for himself than U.S. foreign policy has created for itself. And he is supporting Assad, and as Dennis said quite correctly, he is, he is demonstrating to the region and, and elsewhere that he will stick with his guy, and he will be a, a, a loyal friend and ally. We, on the other hand, not only want the ouster of, have wanted the ouster of Assad, but we've wanted a process which is enormously difficult to define, to implement, that's going to lead to, uh, to the end of, of fighting, the end of human rights abuses, and some type of settlement that takes all the interests of the disparate groups in Syria into account. That, in judgment of a lot of people, including myself, is very unlikely in the near term. So we've got uh, asymmetrical, not just asymmetrical interests perhaps, but certainly asymmetrical goals, and, uh, and, uh, and that needs to be taken into account as we think about what they're trying to do 
and what we're trying to do. Uh, I think that uh, I think that uh, that uh, the issue of of Russian uh, the inter, uh, in, uh, the uh, introduction of Russian ground forces in Syria, large numbers. I think that could could change the uh, scope of the conflict and it could and and actually defeat ISIS. In my judgment, is very unlikely. I think Putin has already, to some extent, been burned by uh, by his uh, intervention there. Not to mention. Uh, the uh, shoot down of an airliner in Egypt, uh, the loss of a little that tangle he had with the Turks, and the loss of a plane and the pilot, and the costs that are going to grow in terms of this Turkish-Russian uh, dispute. I can't think of two more kind of thin-skinned, nar narcissistic <laughs> international leaders than Vladimir Putin and Rasip Erdogan. And uh, where this thing could go, really well, <laughs> we could add we could add Donald Trump in that equation, <laughs> but he's not yet president, Dennis. But uh, you, uh, but thinking about how this thing could be go unhinged tells me that I think that uh, that the Russians are running big risks here, and I doubt very seriously though that uh, that uh, that uh, that uh, Putin would take the step of introducing substantial numbers of. Uh, of, of ground forces. I think a more interesting question is to think about the possible, is there likely uh, a convergence of, of US and Russian uh, diplomatic strategy in the Vienna process? And this uh, largely in part will resolve or, or, or revolve around whether, whether there's, a, there's a deal on Assad. You already see a slight movement there as has been pointed out this morning, uh, Kerry seems to be backing off from the idea that Assad would necessarily have to go at the outset. The Russians are sort of hinting that Assad won't, wouldn't necessarily have to be around at the completion of some kind of deal. So there seems to be some kind of, uh, of progress there. That said, it's not even for me an issue of whether Putin is playing a zero-sum game. I think the big mistake uh, we could make here is to think that somehow the United States and Russia, even if they were to reach agreement, could, 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 uh, could drive an overall settlement here. Uh, first of all, there are the other regional powers, and they're going to have a lot to say, in some cases more to say, than perhaps either the United States or Russia. They, inv they include Turkey, they involve Iran, and they involve Saudi Arabia. And then there are the groups on the ground in Syria who uh, enormously, again, enormously complex, including, of course, ISIS. Uh, one thing that I don't think has sort of been adequately kind of fleshed out in today's uh, discussion is uh, I, I'm in the camp of those who, are, who argue that what we are seeing with ISIS and what we are seeing in Syria and Iraq is part of a bigger, almost 30 years war that has two critical elements to it. One is geopolitical, which is a contest, if you will, uh, between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, and two, it's sectarian. It's Sunni and Shia. 
And uh, that, that creates, that creates an, a, a dynamics that make it more bar barbaric and, and, and make it more complicated. And so what I'm suggesting here, and this is where I would have to come back with Dennis and his creation of a safe zone, it may, we, I don't think ideas like humanitarian corridors or safe zones work without a strong ground, ground partner. And we have failed, I think, this morning to define who that strong ground partner is. We can talk about, well, we'll get the Turks in there. Well, we've already recognized this morning that the Turks' major interest is not ISIS. It, 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 is, it is protecting their, Turk, their, their Turkmen and, and dealing with the Kurdish issue. So if it's not the Turks, we're not going to get, uh, we're, they're not, the Kurds are great when they're defending their community and their regions. You can't expect the, the Kurds to go into the Arab zones and, and fight ISIS there. So we, we're, left with this, we're left with the problem of the Sunnis in Syria and, and, and in Iraq. And without a strong ground partner, we're not going to be able to deal with ISIS. So uh, in the end, in the end, uh, you, even U.S.-Russian convergence is not going to address this problem. And if I'm correct, we're seeing a kind of 30 years war work itself out. I don't think it, either the United States alone or together are going to solve this problem. Rick, thank you for those very provocative comments on Pavel. Thank you, uh, and thank you for having me at, here at Atlantic Council. Russian objectives in Syria have been already mentioned today, and I can only concur. The first uh, objective is upholding the Assad regime, and as a lasting Russia friendly military and political foothold in the Middle East, and showing Washington a middle finger in the process, <laughs> which is kind of two birds with one stone. But there are more. Uh, other ambitious goals or birds in sight, using the fight with terror, with ISIS, uh, as a tool to build a wide coalition or a new anti-Hitler coalition, as Putin said in his New York speech in September, uh, based on, and based on this coalition, a new world order. Uh, as, uh, that, as Putin uh, defined it, it's a new world order that will be based on the following uh, traditional principles of the Holy Union, forbidding any kind of revolutions and giving uh, all possible uh, established tyrants the mandate for us to be sovereign tyrants and do as they wish. Well, because revolution is more worse. And of course, second principle is the principle also traditional of the concert of great powers defining world issues with the big powers, maybe using the UN Security Council making the decisions and the smaller powers concurring with them. And third, though not publicly so clearly defined, is to kind of carving up the Eurasia uh, zone into spheres of influence. And that would build the new world order that would give uh, Europe peace for generations, as today in Moscow the official position is, Yalta I gave uh, Europe generations of peace. So first uh, anti-Hitler coalition, Yalta I. Second anti-Hitler coalition, Yalta II. 
that would also solve Ukrainian problem, uh, the pro um, eliminate anti-Russian sanctions, uh, more or less as uh, Polish and Czechoslovak problems were solved in Yalta one. Uh, it's, of course, a top gain, a high-risk uh, gamble. Uh, but these calculations today uh, seem increasingly irrelevant. After November 4, when a Russian Sukhoi 24 bomber was shot down by a Turkish uh, fighter close to the Turkish-Syrian border. Today, we are at a very different situation. We have, we're actually on the brink of a armed confrontation, regional confrontation between Turkey and Russia. In northern Latakia province, Turkish and Russian forces are, and Turkey and Russia are on a totally collision course. Uh, there's a, a bombing campaign increasingly vicious there. And under this bombing campaign and with its support, uh, uh, Hezbollah and uh, the Alevite uh, militias and others are pressing a ground offensive against the Turkmen uh, positions and are, well, moderately successful. There's increasingly heavy ordnance being used, including uh, fuel bombs or uh, 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 delivered by air and by uh, the uh, sunburn multiple rocket launch system to uproot uh, entrenched uh, opposition forces. And some of the fighting is already happening just on the Turkish-Syrian um, uh, border. And uh, as this offensive continues, the fighting is going to move towards the Turkish border. Shells, and these are dumb shells, basically, are going to fall on Turkish territory. That's more or less inevitable. And of course, the Russian military were given orders to shoot first and shoot to kill. As Putin said, you should destroy any targets that potentially can threaten you. And the Russian military would, of course, want to level the score after losing one uh, jet and one uh, helicopter and maybe see a Turkish plane down. And if nothing is being, will be done, it's a high probability that there are going to be more incidents and which will eventually transform, escalate into a local conventional war. The, the greatest problem with that is that conventionally, in that part of the world, Turkey is stronger than Russia. Uh, on the ground, absolutely. Uh, on the sea, also. In air, most likely, it also would have an upper hand, which would mean that Russia would, uh, Russian forces could suffer humiliating uh, losses, and uh, which means that the conflict may escalate further to, uh, to the Black Sea, to the use of long-range Russian cruise missiles against targets, say, in, I don't know, Erdogan's palace in Ankara. Though it's a very big thing, I mean, and again, if you use uh, just conventional uh, cruise missiles against that palace, it's too big to destroy. And, of course, and it also should be taken into account that the Russian present uh, operational plans for a confrontation with NATO or NATO-connected nation where Russia will be conventionally weaker, and this is understood that Russia is conventionally weaker, Me, uh, our, uh, res uh, to resolve that problem, we're going to go nuclear. We're going to go nuclear at a very early stage, uh, limited 
tactical nuclear attack by these long-range cruise missiles, but only nuclear-tipped. And Putin just days ago said that these cruise missiles could be nuclear-tipped if it comes to it. And we're right now in a situation that may be much more, even more dangerous than 73 in the Middle East, when DEFCON went up to one notch. We could see DEFCON going up again in the coming days or weeks if nothing is being done. And right now, nothing is being done seriously. Returning to 73, we should understand that we right now need maybe to use some procedural uh, tactics to have uh, shuttle diplomacy between Moscow and Ankara to solve the immediate problem, a local standing uh, and effective ceasefire in northern Latakia that would give uh, the Turkomans uh, a possibility that they will not be pushed out because for, for the Turks, and especially not only for Erdogan politically, but for the Turkish military, uh, ethnic cleansing of ethnic Turks on a foreign territory, that's like Cyprus. They could believe they have to go. And for Russia, it's very important to clean northern Latakia because it's too close to our base. And, if, uh, and so from there, if we leave that in the hands of unpredictable rebels, uh, there could be launched a ground attack on the Russian base. And, it, and the Russian base is very vulnerable to ground attack. There's not enough strategic depth there. So everyone should give, it's like you should, like in the, on the Golan Heights, you have to find a kind of way of a compromise to avoid a head-on Russian-Turkish collision. And right now, I'm afraid, ISIS is not the real problem. There are more important things uh, at play and at stake. Right now, it's like when in 1914, after the shooting in Sarajevo of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, to believe that the main problem is Serb terrorism. What was a, a Serb terrorism was a problem, and the Black Hand was uh, state-sponsored, and the Austrians actually dealt with it mostly as a terrorist problem, which of course was wrong because it, this, it led to a terrible war. Right? Uh, I don't believe that the present American policy, as stated by recently by Obama in his visit, during his visit to the Pentagon is adequate. It's not ISIS right now. It's not Assad right now. It's avoiding a head-on collision between Russia and Turkey, There's, which could be actually mostly fueled by misunderstanding and misperception on all sides of attitudes and possible uh, outcomes. And there's Russia sending signals, and Putin is talking about uh, possible use and talking about nuclear weapons. He believes, he made the point, you can't fight uh, and attack and shoot down planes of a nuclear superpower. And most likely in Turkey, they believe that they've, since they're NATO, no one's, to, no one's going to attack a NATO nation. So both sides most likely believe that they are secure and they're blindly st maybe stumbling into a very dangerous situation. Um, Pavel, thank you for reminding us, no, no matter how bad we thought the situation was, in fact, it's worse. Waffle, <laughs> <laughs> please. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Hayes. Thank you, Ambassador Cedoni, for inviting me for this uh, to uh, the Atlantic uh, Council uh, to give a, a regional flavor to the discussion. And uh, 
I'm not a Russian exp expert. I'm, uh, I'm not very tuned as well to the to Washington discussion. Uh, this is very intelligent, sophisticated discussion for me. Uh, but I, I, what I will uh, tell you the, in the next five or seven minutes, seven points from where I sit in, the, in, the, in, in Baghdad, and the way we look at this Russian uh, new engagement, if you like, or Russian campaign, new campaign in Syria. Uh, and I, I have to go back to five years ago uh, when uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Maliki met, uh, uh, met uh, well, more than that, uh, uh, Putin, and I was there for 90 minutes. Uh, the man spent 60 minutes, literally one hour, talking about terrorism uh, and uh, Islamic extremism. Uh, so it's a real uh, threat he feels at home. And I, I, I honestly believe that this has been overlooked by the, I don't know, 20 or 30 million Muslims in, in Russia now. Uh, with the, we, are, we have at least uh, 2,000 Chechen jihadists in my country uh, blowing themselves uh, uh, in, in, with fighting my people. So uh, this is the real, uh, this is the real uh, stuff. These people can go back to Russia, can inflame and uh, uh, ruin this and ruin this, ruin the minds and hearts of people and create this, uh, uh, this hatredness and this exclusiveness. So I, I believe he understands, the Russians understand much better than a lot of people uh, around the world, uh, the ideological challenge of uh, this Wahhabism, Salafism, well, orthodox, whatever you call it, call it. But I, I, I call it the Wahhabi, the Wahhabi virus infecting the minds and and the hearts of people. So this is, I think, this is one important. Uh, I'm, I, I have heard so many uh, in the first panel, second panel, uh, well, this panel, a lot of uh, negative things of the Russian engagement or campaign in in Syria. But let's 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 flip it and try to find, is there any, from, from where I sit in Baghdad, is there any positive uh, 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 things in, 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 this, in this engagement? Uh, one thing is, I, I think they, they understand better, as I said, the, the ideological challenge. And the other thing is, uh, the Russian campaign in Syria, from our perspective, has heightened the interest and encouraged and enhanced U.S. involvement in my country, in Iraq. And I, I can feel it, and I can feel the urgency of helping the uh, Iraqis in, in, in training, in delivering weapons, in, 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 in delivering the C4 IS, ISR, and all sorts of things. So th that created a sense of urgency in, the, in, in D.C. in helping uh, uh, my country, or the fight against ISIS in, in, in Iraq. Uh, we also felt when we tried to retake Beji and Beji refinery, uh, and we, we, we advanced to up, uh, up to Shargat, uh, the, we, we felt that ICE, uh, well, Daesh is not that strong because 
these uh, roots of supply has been dest well destroyed by the by the Russian campaign in in Syria because the 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 death supply is coming from Syria for to, from us and and that is exactly what happened in Ramadi when we lost Ramadi in in May this year but uh, the the good news is that we we we, we retook uh, Ramadi a few days ago so i i believe it has some uh, a positive if you like uh, implication uh, are the iranians and uh, and russians are they 100% allies and their, their interests in Syria are the, is it identical? I don't think so. I think there, there is a lot of competition there. There is a lot of, well, the, the Russians are trying, the, this anti, sky high anti-American uh, sentiment in the region has always been capitalized by the, by, by the Iranians for the last uh, 13 or, well, for the last two or three uh, decades now. Now, I think this is, they, the, the Russians wanted to capitalize on this as well and, and uh, try to uh, rejuvenate their old ties. And we can, we can see in their, in their, in their approach, and they're sending their, their feelers to, to approach the old Baptist, uh, the old communist, the, 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 uh, the extra, well, the, the Orthodox Islamist, if you like, but they, they, they're on the left side. So the, this, is, this is another uh, aspect you can look at the, at the Russian in, uh, campaign in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in Syria. You can see in the region where I come from, or where I sit, is the, mostly the, the Shia in the region are welcoming the Russian role, the new role of Russia, in the Middle East, while the Sunnis are, uh, they're opposing it basically. Most of them, with the, with the, with the, with the except of with the with the except except well with Egypt as a as a as an uh, is not is not a, I mean is is with 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 Russian uh, involvement in the in the region. Uh, people also in my region uh, are welcoming the Russian role in Syria because their rules of engagements are different. Whether they are the military rules of engagement or the political rules of engagement, they're much more liberal. They're much more, well, less sensitive, if you like. Uh, we have been telling uh, our American allies that uh, the, the oxygen which is supplying uh, the uh, Daesh is, the, is them selling the Iraqi oil in the black market in Turkey. And this is, these are thousands of trucks going through that route. And the Americans, because this is the, the, the administration, I mean, the, the, uh, they, they said this is a civilian target. Until three or four weeks ago, they started to hit these, uh, these flatten the, 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 well, the oil wells, the, oil, the, the refinery uh, capacity, uh, the, uh, the refineries, as well as the routes, the, these, uh, these trucks. So this is, now we're, we're trying to uh, market the idea, if you like, of targeting the high-value individuals among Daesh. Daesh is, uh, the, the, and they, they're using this loophole in the, in the system. Because the Americans' rules of engagement from the sky on the, uh, 
uh, any, any targets on the, on the ground, they, they, they're very, very highly selective on it. Now, the, uh, and the, the high-value individuals, they, when they travel, they used to travel in convoy. Now they are traveling with their family and with, the, with his wife and with his children to avoid any, any, any engagement from, from, from air. So the Russians are much more liberal in their rules of engagement. Another way of saying bloody. And probably that suits the region, at least for the time being to crush this enemy because this is this is this is a brutal this is this is a, a is it is as said is indispensable for 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 Iran and Russia I don't think so I think they will they will settle for a, a, but for the right price they will settle for an Alawiyat Alawiyat reformed Right. more representative regime. But if, if, if we force him out uh, without an agreement, the whole state will collapse, the uh, Syrian army will disintegrate, and we will see, and we, we, we will, as, as people said, the, 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 the day after, the, the day after, uh, after what, what happened after Assad. And we saw this happen in a very, very bad way in Iraq. The, the, the first 100 days after 9th of April 2003, that 100 day, we really, really left the country in total vacuum. And this is exactly what's going to happen. Or you don't get uh, the, 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 the good guys, the good Syrian guys in, in, in Damascus. You get, you get uh, the, the very well uh, armed and equipped and, and trained the guys. They, 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 they're Daesh. So I, I believe it's, uh, we need to look at the, uh, um, I tried to, to put the positive spin, if you like, on it to counterbalance uh, the, 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 the argument uh, uh, against the Russian uh, uh, intervention in, uh, in. But I, before I leave, uh, uh, I, I think I will, uh, I understood Adam, I hope I understood him wrong. Did he say that uh, Assad created ISIS? Uh, as, uh, ISIS is in, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in, 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 uh, in Somalia, in Yemen, in, uh, in Libya, in, in Boko Haram, all over the world. It is the ideology which is, okay, he, may, he might have uh, plotted, and please don't get me wrong, uh, I'm, uh, Assad has killed tens of thousands of my people. And when I presented him three times with evidence, he totally denied it. But we, we know that he has, he has sent hundreds, well, thousands of jihadists through that uh, very porous borders in the 2005, uh, fifth, six, seven, and eight, and nine. Until then, it backfired on him, and this is—I think—I honestly believe that this is this will repeat itself in Turkey because we haven't talked about Turkey. This will repeat itself with Turkey because Erdogan is not coming 
on this side of the table. His, his, his waiver and his, his priorities is not ISIS. But this ideology is the cancer which is eating in the, in the minds and hearts of all, all of, of Muslims all over the world. And that's the message I wanted to deliver. Thank you very much, Doctor. I'm going to offer a few comments and then open the floor to questions. I'm going to give you five or six observations to try and provide a sense of, of where we are. Um, first, the military momentum in Syria remains largely on the side of ISIL, and not just ISIL, but Jabhat al-Nusra and Akhar al-Sham and the other jihadi groups. This is a result, second observation, of the Elan, which comes back to the doctor's point about this ideology, but also very importantly, and only Rick really highlighted this, the support they receive from governments in the Gulf Thank you. and Turkey, and also from private individuals in those countries, where I think the principal supports going to ISIL. Three, the Russian intervention to back, buck up Assad has been notably ineffective. Um, reports have demonstrated that they've been at this for three months, and Assad has taken back, and this was a report, 0.004% of Syrian territory. I thought the Russian intervention would do a little bit better than that. But it hasn't, because air power alone will not do it. Four, Russia is already confronting the dilemma that I thought it would take another three to 12 months for them to confront, which is either they had to intervene more sharply or their clients is going to start being on the defensive again. That's why, five, we're beginning to see some signs, and I don't want to overstate this, and I'm amazed that I'm the guy on the panel who's the least negative on the Russian role. We're beginning to see some indications, inklings, that maybe Moscow's position is changing. And these, these have been referred to already. One, uh, what is it? Uh, you had European diplomats suggesting that the Moscow, also all anonymous, anonymously, that Moscow is maybe not wedded to Assad at the end of the process. By the same token, we've seen a clear movement to the American position that Assad does not have to leave right away. Um, we see um, all this flurry of diplomatic activity, which, yes, it, it heightens Putin's role on the world stage, but there's an understanding in Moscow that they have to somehow reach out to the Sunni powers backing all the, backing the extremist groups on the ground. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean that Moscow is actually going to do the necessary. They also want, as Rick pointed out, to use their sudden role in Syria as a way to persuade the Europeans to ease up on sanctions relating to Ukraine. That's not going to happen in January. The Europeans took that decision on the margins of the G20 summit. But now they're looking at, at June and July when it had to be renewed another time. And the statements by Renzi gives Moscow hope that this, this, this ploy will work. But so far, Moscow does not necessarily see a need to actually do the necessary in Syria. We see Aulan and others are falling all over themselves trying to welcome the Russian role without Moscow actually doing something serious. Dennis laid out a very clear test of Russian intentions. I am confident that they will fail that test. But the interesting question will be, what happens when they fail that test, the diplomatic process is going nowhere, and Assad is starting to be on the defensive again, because Russian air power alone will not do it. Fred gave us this morning a possible solution to this. 
And Dennis also gave us a partial solution to this, which is begin to put some real military presence on the ground. That, however, requires troops on the ground. And at the present time, it's not going to be American troops, although the American public's position is changing as a result of the attack in San Bernardino. Uh, it would have to involve Turkish troops for sure, probably French troops, and very important, a clear understanding with the Sunni powers that they're going to stop their support for the extremists, and maybe they're going to put their own troops on the ground. My sense is this is all possible, but the time frame is not three months, it's not six months, it's not 12 months. It's probably 24 to 36 months. And a new admi American administration would factor into this. With that, let's open the floor to questions. Right there. Nope, you're, 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 I'll give you a second, but she's first, Alex. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Jumana Qadur. I'm Syrian-American, um, and I work at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, and I cover Syria and Iraq. Uh, my question was actually very directed to Mr. Muwafaq. I, um, you, know, you claim to be a representative of the Arab perspective on the panel, when, in fact, I think it's more honest to say that you are a representative of the Iraqi government on this panel. Um, you claim that you want to take a look at the positive benefits of Russian intervention in Syria. Um, and you cited two examples that are very focused just on what, you know, that benefit directly the Iraqi government. Um, I'd like to know what you think about how the Russian intervention, how it can possibly be positive for the people inside of Syria. I'm talking specifically about the 200,000 Syrians that have been displaced since October, since Russian intervention. I'm talking about the thousands of Syrians that have been killed. Um, uh, as a result of the Russian targeting of hospitals, schools. I don't know if you saw in Duma last week, they targeted, uh, it was the Russians who targeted the schools and the hospitals in these areas. Um, and I'd like to know, well, however, while Adam did not say that ISIS was created by Assad, and I don't believe it was created by Assad, what do you say about the fact that ISIS has been able to lay a foothold in countries that utilize corrupt uh, measures to control their people um, and, uh, you know, have used, you know, that this has made it worse and has allowed ISIS to actually flourish there, Afghanistan, Somalia, et cetera? Thank because you. Because time is short, we'll take three questions right away. Question, question two right here. No, right in front. Okay, and then th question three is right there. Uh, my name is Alexis Sapchenko, and uh, my question is um, most m is related to the solutions. Uh, and the, the, it might sound ignorant, but still, I'd like to, uh, to ask it. Uh, the f ISIS exists because it constantly replenishes its uh, fighters with the new recruits coming from mostly from Europe. They uh, are supposed to cross a border and they cannot cross the border with Israel, they cannot cross the border with Lebanon, they can, basically they cannot come via Baghdad. The only country they come through is Turkey. It wouldn't be easier, instead of cajoling Turkey into sending its troops or doing something else, just to ask to stop, because it's very easy to identify those people. They come and go permanently. Why nobody raise this issue? Okay, thank you. And thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, my name is Ola Olim. I'm a European Union uh, senior fellow at um, Brookings uh, this year. And uh, first of all, regarding uh, the speculation on um, the European Union and uh, Ukraine sanctions, um, I, I understand the concern, but I think today it was indicated in Brussels that the sanctions were rolled over for another six months. So in June and July, it may come up again. I mean, there was this indication that you said that Italy has, uh, somebody said that they were wobbling on it. Actually, they only asked for a discussion. 
And in fact, I think if one analytically looks at the Russian involvement in Ukraine and, and Syria, then one could even posit the possibility that uh, Russian involvement in Syria will mean a lessened possibility. They have less bandwidth to make trouble in Ukraine. I don't think they can feasibly increase their commitment in Syria at the same time as they are uh, looking to um, reverse uh, what they have committed to do under Minsk II in, in Ukraine. Uh, that was my comment, and um, oh, by the way, on the refugee question, I think also uh, it's a bit far-fetched, and uh, I've heard also some conspiracy theories almost about how Turkey, um, uh, by design, uh, opened up its borders to allow the flow of refugees out of Turkey. In fact, if one looks at the refugee situation in the region, it was certainly an objective factor that these countries, Turkey, Jordan, and Lebanon, have been completely overwhelmed. And uh, now the, the welcoming mat is wearing thin, and, and these people were really desperate and looking for a way to go out. If the Turks did look the other way, it was really a, a whole set of circumstances, and certainly not, I think, a calculated strategy uh, to put pressure on the EU to, to open up accession negotiations, and I think also the same applies to Russia. Um, regarding the, the uh, origins of the Islamic State group, uh, I'm, I'm astonished that there's no recognition here that, in fact, the Islamic State group started in Iraq. And in fact, I think it's, it's excellent that we have an Iraqi representative on this panel because uh, as we have already recognized uh, by adopting a strategy on Iraq and Syria together, seeing it as one regionalized conflict, it's very difficult to resolve this issue looking at Syria in isolation. And my, my last point or qu question would actually be regarding Russian intentions and motivations. And perhaps this would key into also what our Iraqi representative said here regarding the newfound interest of the United States to uh, be involved in, in, in Iraq in, in a more serious way. And that is, what are the Russian intentions with regard to um, Iraq and Iran? I mean, Iran was already mentioned here as a possible buyer of military supplies, but I'm thinking here about uh, larger intentions regarding resources in Iraq and Iran. Is Syria the real prize, or is it looking further afield to Iraq and Iran? Thank you. Okay, we'll go down the panel and answer the questions. Adam, first. Oh, I've collected a lot of, uh, a lot of comments. I mean, I, as I said, um, I, I don't think I ever said that um, ISIS was uh, um, created by Assad. I just meant to say, if I said that, I misspoke, that, um, that the Syrian regime's barbarous behavior has been uh, the principal recruiting tool um, for ISIS. The sources of ISIS go back, of course, to the kind of one-two punch of mistaken American policy in mismanaging the Iraq war and then withdrawing too soon before the Shia government in Baghdad could, could stand on its own two feet. So there, there's never just one reason why complex things happen. There's, there are always more, more than one, two, three, four, five. So I, if I said that, I, I uh, misspoke. Um, uh, about, about the Russians actually designing their policy to create more refugees, well, I've heard now from two people to say that it's far-fetched. Uh, maybe it is. As I said, it's speculative. I have no hard evidence. But uh, I, I will reserve my judgment on this until, um, until the, uh, the truth, if it ever spills out, uh, spills out. Uh, Vladimir Putin seems to me to be a textbook example of like KGB light thinking, that's L-I-T-E. And he was raised to believe that Western institutions were ultimately uh, lethal and eradicably hostile to Russia, and that means both NATO and the European Union. I also think that you know, if the Schengen zone were to go the way of Trotsky's dustbin of history, 
And if European politics in general turns illiberal and more toward the right, as we've seen recently in Poland, as we already have seen in Hungary, the Czech Republic, maybe in the next elections in the Netherlands, we'll see something quite unusual there. I think that this makes it easier, and even Germany, I think this makes it easier for the Russians to deal with EU member states one-on-one -on -one than it is for the Russians to deal with the European Union as a strong uh, confederal, confederal unit. So we'll see on that, on that point, we'll see. Um, as for the Turkey so-called conspiracy theory, again, this is an empirical matter. Uh, I, don't, I don't know all the facts yet. I've read those, I've read those stories. Uh, again, I, I'm mindful of them. I don't know if they're true, I don't, but I don't know that they're false either. So this is an empirical matter, and I think we shouldn't rush to, rush to judgment over those things. The last thing I want to say is, uh, and this is jumping around to subjects a little bit, but if the United States wants to try to create some kind of a coalition force that's useful uh, on the ground, one thing that hasn't been mentioned so far in either panel is this idiotic, stupid war in Yemen that the Saudis are prosecuting. <laughs> and we are allowing, the United States policy is abetting, in a way, uh, this, this stupid, dangerous war in Yemen, because I think we feel bad that we kind of diss the Saudis over the Iran portfolio and a variety of other things that, that tick them off. But this is very, very dangerous and very stupid. We're never going to get uh, the, uh, the Emiratis and, and anybody in the Gulf to look toward first Assad and then Daesh, unless we can end this ridiculous war in Yemen. And it's possible to end it. It's, it is possible. The United States needs to do more to try to end the war than to support the Saudis trying to wage it. Because ultimately, what this will do, I fear, is that this will reenact uh, the, uh, it'll, it'll reopen the wound of the 1934 war over Asir. And uh, in the fullness of time, what we'll see is not Saudi, Saudi forces bombing and, and screwing around in Yemen, we'll see Yemenis trying to retake uh, Asir and Najran. And wouldn't that be interesting? Thank you. Dennis? Um, a couple comments, I guess. One on, on Turkey. Yeah, look, I mean, there's been a focal point uh, of the administration to try, and not only the administration, but I think the Europeans, to try to get the Turks to do much more to try to ensure that their border is not as porous as it has been. There is no doubt that the, the Turkish priority has been more Kurdish than it has been uh, ISIS. On the other hand, the Turks today have 2.2 million Syrian refugees uh, in Turkey. They have a stake in seeing that end, one. Two, more and more of the terror they're facing within Turkey itself is being ISIS-driven, not Kurdish-driven, ISIS-driven. If you look at Turkish behavior over the last couple of months, you've seen a much more systematic effort to go after those within Turkey who are the source of the terror, and that's not just the Kurds, but it's also ISIS, which means there is a potential to affect, I think, Turkish behavior. You know, when I say, you know, create some kind of safe zone, uh, you know, right now, I, I know the administration is not going to go for that. I mean, the president has basically resisted it every step of the way. Uh, the David Ignatius piece the other day, I think, captured, let's put it this way, it wasn't an interpretation of the president's thinking. He was simply quoting the president's thinking. So the, the president's reluctance to be drawn in to these conflicts remains as powerful as has, it has, has ever been. In many ways, I feel like the, the president has overlearned the lessons of Iraq. Uh, and, and part of the problem is we've never had a debate, a serious discussion within this country about the lessons of Iraq. I mean, the people on the left who opposed it, and, and for good reasons, 
have never been prepared to revisit was there anything that we should be learning from this. People on the right who were for it have never really admitted what was wrong with it. <clears throat> we have a president who basically has made that his analogy. You know, we did Vietnam because of Munich. Decision makers make analogies when they make policy. And the analogy for this administration that they applied to Syria was Iraq. Circumstances were very different. This actually was a genuine civil war, and it gets me into this issue. Yeah, Assad didn't create ISIS, but he sure contributed to it. Uh, Assad decided to, in a sense, declare a war within Syria against those who were demonstrating against his regime, not in, at the outset, by the way, almost all of whom were secular to begin with, not because they were calling for regime change. They were calling for reform, and the response to that was draconian. Uh, and then, as a way of saving himself, he had to create a sectarian conflict. He had to say to the Alawis, if I go, you're all finished. So he created a war. Now, it is true, if tomorrow he goes, the prospect that, that ISIS is the one who replaces him is very high. So you, you can't, I mean, if we learn one lesson from Iraq, it's, and maybe also Libya, don't create vacuums that are going to be filled by the worst possible forces. But that doesn't mean our only option is, you know, it has to be that. And here again, you know, I, uh, I was echoing Fred in some respects. I don't see an alternative to the Vienna process, but I don't think the Vienna process as it's currently structured has much prospect of success. And that the tests that I established, I think, are the right ones. If if Putin is really serious about wanting this to work right now, because the president's right that he's going to see the cost, we'll see him behave a certain way on the ceasefire and on ensuring that humanitarian assistance can be delivered. By the way, the Russians voted for that Security Council resolution. They're just doing nothing to ensure that it'll actually be turned into a reality. If you're right, John, that which and I suspect you are, because obviously the way I presented what I did is I don't expect that Putin's going to do this. I don't think he's going to pass that test. The problem we face is we're going to have a, a diplomatic process that is no, going to no continue way. to meander. Uh, it's going to continue to, con it's not going to, it's going to create the illusion that we're trying to do something without actually doing anything. And unfortunately, one of the things that has contributed to our problems has been, this goes back to saying Assad must go. We have objectives, but the means we apply to those objectives don't fit the objectives. Mm -hmm. And something has to give. And the thing that's given so far has been our credibility. Yeah, a uh, couple of brief points. First of all, I completely agree with Adam that, uh, and I'm glad he brought up the, the war in Yemen because I think it sort of crystallizes this broader, this point I make, was making earlier about the sort of 30 years war aspect of the regional problem we, we face. Think about this for a second. Uh, our friend and, and, and a putative ally, Saudi Arabia, is attacking uh, a, an Iranian uh, 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 Shiite group, the Houthis, uh, the, uh, the, who are fighting increasingly a Sunni, a Sunni, uh, 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 a Sunni group that is increasingly dominated by ISIS. So if the Saudis succeed in this effort, they are, are they are could very well face ISIS, an uh, 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 ISIS-dominated 
Yemen to the south, an increasingly strong ISIS in, in Iraq and Syria in the north. So it could, their, 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 their policy could actually bring about their demise. And next year, while we're sitting in this conference room talking about these issues, we could be discussing the strategic implications of the fall of the House of Saud. So that is that I think underscores the problems we're, we're, we're addressing. That takes me to a second point, which is, I think it was maybe uh, maybe uh, you, Dennis, that talked about 1990, 1991, this fantastic success that the uh, first Bush administration had in creating this uh, a, a global coalition to uh, to drive uh, the uh, Saddam Hussein's forces from Kuwait. Uh, in my view, that in it, it was in thinking about the region as a whole is the exception that proves the rule. What you had was a foreign army entering an adjacent state, and uh, and the international community realized that this was a rule. We, we 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 this was a line that shouldn't be crossed, and that we had to we had to uh, we had to respond. And we did respond, and we responded with a spectacular success. But to try to talk about a grand coalition to fight ISIS in a situation of civil uh, and internal internecine conflict in both Syria, in, in Iraq, in Yemen, in, in Libya, and to think that we, and this isn't, uh, I'm not arguing you said this, but to think we could create such a grand coalition to get, uh, to fight in these internal conflicts, I think is a, a huge mistake. And, uh, and that, that's where we're, we're kind of left with a terrible dilemma. Dennis is right. If you intervene in these countries, in these civil conflicts, in these sectarian conflicts, and then you leave, you create a vacuum. And you get, as we've seen in Iraq, or you get in uh, Libya, chaos. But if you don't leave, you're an occupying power, particularly if, you're not an, if, you're not, if you don't have an army that's Arab. If it's Russian, if it's American, if it's European, how long are you going to be welcome there? Well, you have to and that is, the, that is the dilemma that in thinking about what we should do in Syria that nobody can resolve. Pavel, thank you. Uh, uh, I should say, and it was mentioned here about Russian possible uh, ground intervention in Syria, it's basically, it's impossible. There are, uh, geographical, logistical, political problems that are insurmountable since the time of Catherine the Great. If Russia wanted to project force, massive force, in the Mediterranean, you need to control the straits. And if you can't control the straits and if you can't secure uh, guaranteed logistical support for your troops in, through the Bosphorus, I mean, you can't do it. And right now, the Bosphorus are increasingly uh, insecure. The Turks could intervene and do, actually even having a second air base there right now is logistically very much a problem. Uh, because we had to move uh, thousands and thousands of tons of equipment and supplies and continue to move them to have one uh, full-scale base, which is now overcrowded with um, aircraft. But having more is right now not practical. 
And Russian policy in the Middle East right now is uh, off balance. It was absolutely unforeseen that the Turks would move uh, militarily against us. Putin repeats to say that that was a backstabbing, and I believe him that it was not calculated. So the Russian policy is right now in a reactive mood and uh, seeking ways right now mostly targeting Turkey and not anything else, so seeking to isolate Turkey and undermine the present Turkish regime, looking on possible allies with, I don't know, Ajalan, Kurds, no matter what. Of course, this is right now, I mean, since Russians and Russian military and the Kremlin dislike such situations when they have to improvise. It's not the Russian way. But pre-plans went to the bin when the, what happened in 24th of November. And now we are in reactive mood. What comes out in the end right now is not fully predictable. Thank you. Uh, a couple of uh, comments. Uh, I, I feel for you, honestly, Imam, and uh, I, I know eight millions internally displaced, uh, four million uh, uh, refugees, hundreds of thousands killed. Uh, this people will not, uh, I mean, I, I honestly feel about it. Uh, and we, our position in Iraq was very clear right from day one. The uprising was peaceful and just at the beginning. People missed the boat, missed that golden opportunity then four years ago, and did not help the Syrian people. And the, the terrorists had hijacked that peaceful, just uh, 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 uprising. And now we are left with between the devil and the deep blue sea. We are, we are between the devil, the, the evil and less evil. So will you use the less evil to get rid of the evil and then try to do something else after that? That is, it. politics is all about hard choices, aren't they? That, that's the, and Believe me, when, what, what you feel, I feel probably more than, I mean, double that. Because I, I got pe my people, tens of thousands of people, my people killed by, by, the, by this, uh, by this uh, regime. And, but now we have, we have a completely different story we have now. Things have changed. The, uh, I heard the, the gentleman uh, uh, saying that ISIS, well, ISIS group, or uh, the, Islamic, uh, uh, the Islamic State, uh, was sta started in Iraq. And uh, another, uh, 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 I think one of the speakers, with the Iraq war has then started the, uh, the, this uh, terrorism and Islamic terrorism. I don't agree with that. 9-11 was, was there before Iraq war. Taliban was there before Iraq war, before, before anything else. Ladies and gentlemen, please remember one thing. And I said this, and I'm, I, I, I can't get tired of, of repeating it. There is the most peaceful community on earth was the Sunni community in the um, Muslim world. Very peaceful, because, because, because they believe and their central core of thinking is Obey God and the messenger and those who are in charge of you. And this is for decades, well, not decades, centuries. What happened to them 
in the last 40, 50 years. What happened to this community? To, to, to create Taliban, create Mujahideen all over the world, jihadists all over the world, and Yemen, to create Afghanistan and Pakistan, 9-11, Paris, and, uh, and so on and so forth, Boko Haram. What happened? Yemen, what ha Somalia, what happened to them? I think the one thing, that virus, which I refer to, the virus called Wahhabism, which infected the mind and gave it this exclusion, and the heart, which created the hatred. And if you go to any mosque anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world, you will see that. You will see that very clearly. You'll see 7,000 madrasas teaching this ideology in Afghanistan. You will see more than 11,000 madrasas teaching the same ideology in, in Pakistan. You will see madrasas all over the world. You'll see the, that book uh, with, with Quran. Right. Next to wherever you go in the, in the mosque, you will see the book of Wahhabism, they spent billions and billions and billions of, of dollars over the last 30, 40 years to promote this ideology, this hatred ideology. They have to reverse it. They ha it has to be reversed. And, and I'm not attacking my fellow Arab country at all. Because the, the, as I said, the, 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 the Saudi royal family is a, is a, is a, is a secularist is a secular uh, uh, ruling class. And I know them, and I have a lot of friends with them. But it's the religious establishment which is we're talking about. It's the religious establishment which's been funded and given the power, money, and the status by the royal family. And this is what, what the message has to be to the West. Please apply some pressure on your ally, your regional ally, your friends in the region to stop funding these guys. Okay. To stop that, and that, sorry, I got carried away, that, didn't I? Okay, thank you very much. I'm afraid <laughs> to say much, we're five minutes over. Uh, we've already, no more questions. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.